2: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies. It's raining somewhere at the time of this broadcast, probably where you are. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, officials with the University System of Georgia say health and safety was a high priority in preparing for the fall semester. But the United Campus Workers of Georgia
0: don't agree. They have intentionally misled the community about very key aspects of their approach to reopening. Under these conditions, it's insane to reopen under the guidelines they themselves have set.
1: That conversation is coming up in just a moment. And speaking of reopening and how all this relates to COVID-19, we now bring you the latest state data. At this time, the State Department of Public Health reports there are 256,253 cases in the state. The number of hospitalizations has reached 23,425, and of those, 4,272 are ICU admissions. 5,156 Georgians have reportedly died due to the coronavirus. This, of course, is all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Meanwhile, state officials say Georgia has been approved for federal disaster money that will pay an extra $300 a week in unemployment benefits. It's part of the Lost Wages Assistance Program that President Donald Trump authorized when Congress failed to extend unemployment benefits of $600 a week. Those benefits expire July 31st. Now, keep in mind, not everyone who is currently receiving unemployment benefits will receive this additional money, so there are some stipulations. Applicants must be unemployed or partially unemployed due to the pandemic and must receive a weekly unemployment payment of at least $100. Now, officials say the disbursement will last for about three weeks, after which the state has to reapply for more money. And more information on the application process is on the Georgia Department of Labor website. Now, over in DeKalb County, a $15 million COVID-19 small business loan program is being launched. In fact, there was a webinar last night. And the loan program is among a number of resources being made available to residents. And there's a lot more. So join me now to talk all about it is DeKalb County CEO, Michael Thurman. CEO Thurman, as always, thank you for taking the time.
4: Oh,
2: delighted to be with you, Rose. Thanks for the invitation.
1: Hope all's well with you and everyone else over there in DeKalb.
2: Uh, we're working, as you know, to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. Uh, it's an insidious disease and it has wreaked havoc all across the world, the United States of America, here in Georgia. And we are doing everything possible to keep the cab 750,000 residents safe and secure uh, during this crisis uh, that's both health and economic.
1: Well, let's talk about the health first because, as of right now, at the time of this conversation, you all have just over 16,000 confirmed cases, um, about 1,700 hospitalizations, and a little bit, and 280 total deaths. Do you believe that these numbers, whether it's the CAB or any of the county or the entire state of Georgia, do you believe the numbers we've been getting? from the Department of Public Health are about as accurate as they can be or do you fear that the numbers don't truly reflect those who have been infected with the virus and the deaths?
2: Well statisticians are basically unanimous in their belief that all the uh, reporting uh, here in Georgia and across the country is actually underreporting the number of infections uh, that's being uh, spread as well as the number of deaths and it might be years after the end of the pandemic, before we really, really understand uh, the damage that has been wrought uh, by this disease. But the data that we do have offers local elected officials like myself at least a general roadmap as to infections and how to uh, invest resources and time and energy uh, to try to protect our citizens.
1: You know, Georgia right now is experiencing a little bit of a decrease in the number of hospitalizations over time and the average of new cases. Is that a hopeful metric for you, CEO Thurman, in terms of being able to mitigate the spread of this virus?
2: And, of course, the number of deaths are actually increasing. But this is very typical of the virus. It, it, it comes in waves. You have outbreaks. The, the, uh, it, the spread occurs. And then there's a plateau and a decline. And unfortunately, in another geographic area, you see another outbreak. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we should be lulled to sleep or even to celebrate any uh, obviously good news, not bad news. But we have to recognize how this virus operates, how it moves, and how it can reassert itself at any time. So we have to constantly remain vigilant.
1: You have a good relationship with uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Have you all had conversations regarding whether it's mask mandates or any issues related to the pandemic and any concerns you have for DeKalb County?
2: Uh, No, I've not discussed COVID-19 with the governor uh, throughout the pandemic.
1: Do you think there should be a statewide mask mandate?
2: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, What uh, my belief is that the most appropriate strategy would have been to establish a statewide mandate with an opt-out, not an opt-in provision. So it would have been much easier for local communities uh, to move forward, to create uh, the type of local responses that could help to slow the spread of COVID-19. So the one thing I would have done differently and I know this is Monday morning quarterbacking, but an opt-out as opposed to an opt-in statewide mass mandate.
1: Mm. C.L. Thurman, what are you hearing from residents in terms of their quality of life right now? What's the biggest need?
2: Well, for those, obviously, who've been infected by the disease itself, it's a medical treatment. And the strategy, of course, is to prevent infection as much as possible so we work with our board of health dr elizabeth ford doing a great job as the uh, uh, district director to do everything we can uh, to prevent the spread of covid 19. we were one of the first jurisdictions to begin to mass distribution of masks and sanitizers across the county more recently we initiated a no mass no service uh campaign where local businesses were given signs and mass to give to customers Uh, Who may not have access to the PPE. Uh, But really, if you think about the broader population, uh, number one is emotional and psychological support. Uh, Along with the $16 million in CARES funding we appropriated to the Board of Health, uh, we appropriate approximately $3 million to our community uh, service board. Uh, Underreported, is the emotional and psychological trauma that this disease is causing yeah. among the general population? And, you know, looking back uh, years from now, we may realize that it was the emotional and psychological as opposed to the physical uh, damage that may have had a disproportionate impact. And second only to that is food insecurity. Mm. Uh, each month now, uh, for the last three months, we've distributed tens of thousands of tons of food. Uh, to residents who are experiencing food insecurity.
1: And not to mention the toll this is taking on small businesses, which leads me to the next question, because you all now have a $15 million COVID-19 small business loan program. Now, is that through federal funding or is that coming from the county?
2: It's CARES Act funding. Uh, Very uh, proud of the support we received from our board of commissioners, a unanimous support. We appropriated $15 million to be used to support small businesses uh, in our Better Business Loan Program. Uh, we're partnering with uh, Citizens Trust Bank as our lending partner, and local businesses uh, in DeKalb County small businesses can qualify up to $40,000, and if they follow the policies and procedures set out in the program, those loans had the potential of being forgiven, uh, for those businesses who qualify.
1: Now, how can businesses find out about this balloon program?
2: Well, of course, you go to the uh, DeKalb County website uh, at any point in time. That there's information there. On yesterday, uh, we conducted a webinar. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had over 300 businesses who tuned in uh, to see, uh, to gain additional information. About the program and about how it may be able to help, you can contact the the uh, Chamber of Commerce as well as Decide Cab. Those are two other partners that's also involved with us in providing this resource. See, and I, I'm so happy that you mentioned our loan program because this is a two-pronged crisis, mm-hmm. uh, health and economic. And along with that, we have other strategies in place. I mentioned the no mask, no service, distributing free. Uh, PPE to small businesses, and this we just completed two weeks ago our DeKalb Virtual Career Academy. I know you did, a, you interviewed Miss Austin Gibbons mm-hmm. earlier this year. I listened to the program where well, we graduated 800 young people uh, from that program who were paid $9 an hour who engaged in virtual learning and virtual employment over the summer.
1: Let's talk about homeowners for a moment, too, uh, CEO Thurman, because you all, there's a $119 million in property tax relief for this year?
2: Yes. Uh, tax bills went out last weekend and last week in DeKalb County. And for the third year in a row, we provided uh, major tax relief for uh, homeowners in DeKalb County. This year, it's $119 million in property tax relief through our e-hosts. Uh, tax credit where we use sales taxes to offset uh, the ad valorem tax. The average uh, two, homeowner, $250,000 home in the cab, mm-hmm. we receive about $944 in uh, property tax relief. And that's very important right now oh, yeah. for two reasons. Obviously, because of COVID 19, but we have uh, communities that are undergoing gentrification. So this will allow long time residents. To continue to live in the property that they paid for and basically invested their life in the maintaining, and one of the main drivers of gentrification is not being able to finance uh, the property taxes that are associated with homes with rising with rising home values.
1: Let me ask you: this so when you're driving around the county and and you look at um, what's been taking place, you mentioned development and gentrification, and do you have concerns about where this county? Will be because of all that, and people possibly being displaced.
2: Absolutely, you know, the cab is becoming is a boom county, and of course, we had to address some long-standing issues. Uh, we recently uh, have a uh, engaged, a uh, uh, able to uh, come to a tentative agreement with the. Uh, uh, EPA and EPD, our federal regulators, uh, environmental regulators, regarding the CAF's consent decree. We, we have something that will soon be before the court. We are investing $400 million, about $300 million of it, in improving our streets and roads. Uh, just this past week, Moody's upgraded the CAF bond rating. We've been in a, been in a very negative uh, rating scenario for 11 years. And uh, just this past week, we were upgraded because of what they describe as much stronger fiscal management and oversight. Our best days are in front of us. And my goal is for DeKalb County and all of its residents to exit this crisis in a stronger, uh, better position than what we were when we entered the crisis. So I'm very bullish on DeKalb County. And more importantly, I'm bullish on the citizens of DeKalb who quite frankly are rising to the occasion, our municipal leaders, our county leaders, our uh, state judicial leaders, constitutional officers, we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. And that page is creating a better life for the residents of DeKalb.
1: But as it relates to this current crisis, and you talked about mitigating the spread of the coronavirus there in DeKalb County, but now from K-12 through to colleges and universities, Students are back in the classroom. The cab has both. You obviously you have your public school systems, your school systems overall. You have some c- colleges there and 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 university satellite uh, campuses. What concerns do you have that if there is a, a a tremendous increase among student population, whether it's public or higher education, what concerns do you have? Because then you you now you run the risk of increasing those numbers that we talked about earlier.
2: Well, I very much support the decision by Superintendent, our new superintendent, Cheryl Watson-Harris, and the Board of Education for opening schools this year with 100% virtual learning. That was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, Agnes Scott and some of our other uh, large institutions, Emory, are following suit. So I trust institutions of higher learning will put the health and safety above and before uh, any business or financial considerations. Uh, so far, they've demonstrated, I think, outstanding leadership. Emory University is a preeminent health organization. Mm-hmm. And, quite, and I always encourage when I hear doctors uh, and administrators associated with Emory Hospital and Emory University really leading the charge. And. Georgia and other entities do more uh, to prevent the spread. So on that accord, I feel good about it, but Mm -hmm. we're dealing with something that there's no COVID-19 playbook Mm -hmm. and there's no one who can absolutely say you should do X or Y. We're learning as we're going, but the good news is we have people who have the right uh, attitude, who focus on public service and health, and I just think at the end of the day, we'll end up in a better place than where we started.
1: Now, as we wrap up, there's no way you and I can end a conversation and not talk about politics. You're a major influence in the Democratic Party here in Georgia, been for a long time. I'm curious, are, are you watching the Republican National Convention at all?
2: Uh, no, <laughs> but okay. I, I intend to. I see it replayed on the news. I'm not watching it as it's unfolding, but I am paying attention and I'm obviously following the news reports.
1: Can the Biden-Harris ticket win in Georgia, CEO Thurman?
2: Absolutely. This campaign is not really so much about Biden and Harris, it's about Donald Trump. This is a referendum on four years of leadership that has been divisive, uh, that has brought America into a major economic crisis. It's about an administration that's not aggressively responded to the greatest health challenge in the recent history of our nation. So this is a referendum, make no mistake about it, on the leadership of Donald Trump. And I think it speaks volumes where 24 major Republican leaders in the nation came forth and said that they will not and cannot support Donald Trump. Hmm.
1: What do you make of 2020? A pandemic, protests, politics? It's been quite a year. Can you even think back to a time in your career where so much was happening in our nation?
2: Uh, no. And, you know, and this is really a time when it can't really just be about Republicans and Democrats and red T-shirts and blue T-shirts. We have to focus on America and the people. And this is a time for the type of leadership that can rally Americans across the political divide, across the racial and philosophical uh, divide that separates us and, 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 and here and embrace our better angels. That's what's being tested right now. Can we, as political leaders and as citizens, put the best interests of America first? And that's the type of leadership we need. That's the focus we need. And I'm just praying because we're at an inflection point in the history of this nation, in the history of the world. But uh, great challenging times uh, oftentimes bring forth great leaders. And let's just hope that as a nation and as a people, uh, we'll do what we've always done. America always rises to the occasion. And I don't think and I have no doubt that we will not rise again.
1: CEO Michael Thurman of DeKalb County, as always, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Stay safe over there.
2: Oh, yeah. You be safe, too, Rose. And, uh, you know, we love and appreciate all you do in educating and inspiring and elevating the discussion and the IQ and intellect of of your listeners. Thank you.
1: And I didn't even know you were going to say all that. Thank you. (laughs)
0: the field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T.edu.
1: Closer look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As our Back to School edition continues, next, it's a plan called the Flexible Approach to Teaching and Learning. It's a five-part phase plan for the Marietta City Schools to fully integrate all students for the upcoming school year. And as you've been hearing on WABE, each school district, each school community, large, medium, or small, in terms of students, well, they all have a different approach, but they have the same problems how to keep students, educators, and staff safe, how to prevent the transmission of the coronavirus, and simply the best way to educate all students. Well, joining me now and talk about their plan from the Marietta City School, Superintendent Dr. Grant Rivera. Thank you for taking the time, as always. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you, Rose. So here we are. It is now back to school for so many students. Let me ask you this, Superintendent, uh, what keeps you up at night? You referenced it in the opening. It's it's really the safety of students and our staff. I,
4: we are making, and it's been difficult as a superintendent. I know probably every superintendent across the country feels this. We're making life and death decisions. And I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but what the good news is that we have the authority to make the decision. The challenging and the news that keeps me up at night, as you asked, is the fact that ultimately there isn't a lot of consistency. There isn't always a lot of guidance. And what is given to us is so generic in general that really the onus is on us. And I, I, I carry that responsibility as both superintendent, but also as a father of a child in this district. It's, it's what keeps me up at night.
1: Is it easier for you? And maybe easier is not the right word, but does it help? Because you are a parent who has to make those same decisions for your own kids. Does that help you in in, in your your approach to making decisions for so many other students and somebody else's kids?
4: Well, I'll tell you two ways that my perspective might be a little different, not only as a parent, but also in a school district with 9,000 kids, 12 school campuses, and roughly 1,400 staff. We're smaller than a lot of other districts in the metro Atlanta area. And I think I, I have two things that keep me grounded. One is oftentimes I go home and my wife, who will get an email from me as superintendent to say, what is this? And we start talking through it and a lot of times. I'm not just answering questions to constituents, I'm having to answer to my wife. Um, and she's, she's one of the toughest critics as superintendent. But also in Marietta, I, I know many of the 1400 staff members by name and I know their families. I'm not making decisions in a vacuum. I make decisions knowing which teacher is four months pregnant and which teacher has their their, their, their older parent living with them. I mean, those are the things that I take to heart because I can't just stay insulated in my office and pretend that I don't know the faces and places and dynamics. It's it's something that weighs on me as both a member of this community, but also a
1: superintendent. You think about the size of the Marietta City Schools as opposed to New York City, which is the largest public school system in the nation, but there's a difference there. Each district, each community of schools is going to be different based on the size. You just made a reference saying you take You make sure you want to know what educators are dealing with. But to your knowledge, has any educator, support staff or student tested positive for COVID-19?
4: Yes, we have had since March. We have had, I would say, an isolated number of students um, as well as number of staff test positive. Um, Yeah, without question, it's, it's hit our community in similar ways as it's rippled through every other community in this country.
1: And for clarity, there's already online instruction taking place right now.
4: Correct, Rose. So we started the school year August 4th. We made a commitment to start on our scheduled time, our scheduled date. And all of our kids, we started 100% virtual pre-K four-year-olds all the way through high school. Correct.
1: Now, before we get to the phases, I want our listeners to understand what factors did y'all consider to make that decision.
4: Yeah, Rose, it was extremely difficult. And I, I can tell you if I if I really quickly walk you and your listeners through, back in May, we were planning for a full opening with options for kids to stay virtual. And by full opening, we were going to offer five days a week, five days a week in person or full-time virtual. And what happened is once once we got through July 4th and we saw positive test spike, there was a day that July 14th, I'll never forget it. I got a phone call from the Department of Public Health and they said, listen, we we can't test efficiently. Contact tracing is useless, and we have a problem. And that was really the point at which we decided schools were not safe enough to go back in um, in any in any form or fashion, two days a week, five days a week, what have you. So we pivoted mid-July to a full-time virtual model. The day we made that decision, we started planning for the day that when testing was good enough and contact tracing was functional, could we get our kids back in the building? Because we do believe that our youngest learners especially, and our students with disabilities, benefit from in-person instruction because oftentimes they have the greatest difficulty accessing virtual learning. So really there's been, and I, I tell our community, I'm sorry for the whiplash. There are times where I feel like we have to make decisions and families are wondering what's next. The reality is that we continue to pivot based on the dynamics, but we also recognize that kids need schools when it can be safe.
1: Let me ask you, Superintendent Rivera, do you feel the schools are safe? Because with Tuesday, September 8th coming up, which is what we're going to get into next, which is phase one, you feel the schools are safe. You feel like y'all have enough measures in place.
4: So I'll tell you what I feel good about. And I'll tell you again to go back to your original question when we started, what keeps me up at night. What I feel good about is that Marietta City Schools is able to execute the risk mitigation strategies that are recommended by the CDC and the Department of Public Health. So we will reduce class sizes to five to nine. and can guarantee six feet of social distance in a classroom. We'll take every child's temperature. We'll mandate masks. We'll put up desk partitions to separate kids. We've increased HVAC ventilation and filters. I mean, there's a laundry list of 15 different things. Mm -hmm. I feel good about what we can control. I'll tell you what I don't feel good about. And that is, this is about community transmission. So if we don't have our community change their behavior there's nothing that we can do in schools to keep it out. So if, if our community, and they talk about the three W's, right? Wear a mask, watch your distance, and mm-hmm. wash your hands. If our community honors those three things, we can open safely and keep our kids and staff safe. However, if we pretend that there's a wall high enough to keep COVID out that exists around the school campus, we're going to quickly find out that there isn't one.
1: With this, what you all call this flexible approach to teaching and learning, what are the risk mitigation strategies here? You want to be able to make sure that with each phase that you all are mitigating the transmission risk. Is that correct?
4: It is, Rose, and I think there's a, there, there's a first step that I think is important to understand. And before we even get to the risk mitigation strategies, the reason this is called a flexible approach to teaching and learning We're giving children and families the opportunity, obviously, to make a decision about whether to come in or not. I also believe though, philosophically as an educator, as a colleague of these 1,400 people, that if we're offering children the option to come in or not, we should offer that same flexibility to staff. At the end of the day, this is a personal decision. And whether you're a student or a staff member, I believe that in Marietta City Schools, you deserve the respect and the consideration to make that decision. I'm not going to require you as we open phase one with high community transition to uh, transmission, I'm not going to require you to come into a building when the reality is you may be able to do your job still working the same 12 hours a day, still serving kids, but it doesn't have to be in a classroom. It can be at at home. And we're really trying to show our, both our students, we're trying to extend the same flexibility and, and to our staff that many districts are extending to their students. But with that said, Yes, there are a list of risk mitigation strategies, like I mentioned, we are the reason we're going to a two day a week plan, we will have kids come in on a Monday, Wednesday, or a Tuesday, Thursday grades pre K through second grade, as well as our students that are served in one of four different what we call low incident special education classes and those students in phase one will come in two days a week. We believe that we can. We know we're committed to keeping class sizes five to nine. Therefore, we have the social distancing, as I mentioned earlier, temperature checks of every child before they get on the bus, before they walk into a building, requirement for masks. Little things, little things, important things like students not trans, uh, transitioning to the cafeteria, but mm-hmm. instead eating lunch in their classroom. We're going to, for example, recess. Kids want to get outside. We're going to encourage them to get outside. We put some tents outside each of our elementary schools to give them more opportunities, especially with inclement weather. And we've also created recess materials. We've, we've, we've purchased recess materials for every classroom, so the kids have their own set of recess toys and balls and hula hoops, et cetera. And then we will disinfect that at the end of each day. We've got extra custodians walking in the building, um, wiping down handles and 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 high contact areas. We'll be fogging at night, fogging buses in between bus runs. There's a lot of different risk mitigation strategies we have in place. Every one of them is aligned to what the CDC and the Department of Public Health believe is the safest way possible to open schools.
1: Phase two and phase three, how will you decide that it is necessary to move to those phases? Or for listeners who are saying, well, what what if we see an increase? What if there's a confirmed case? With those phases where you didn't just stop and then say, you know what, everybody is online?
4: Yeah, so I think there's a couple things to understand. So first of all, just to give a very brief overview of the phases, as your listeners may not have it in front of them. Phase one brings back pre-K two, mm-hmm. two days a week, uh, and students with disabilities in elementary school. Phase two then looks at expanding the students uh, students with disabilities who have access two days a week. And then as you move through phase three and phase four, we look to bring kids back five uh, five days a week in elementary, but I'll tell you, Rose, we are extremely cautious Mm -hmm. in elementary. We can bring kids back and keep them in these little homogeneous cohorts all day long. But when you get to middle and high kids transition from class to class. And to your point, there is no guarantee that we're going to march through at certain timelines of this phase from phase one to phase two. We've told our community it could be two to four weeks. It definitely could be longer. The factors we're looking at to your point, As we look at the timeline between each phase, one is what's happening with community transmission. Mm -hmm. We specifically at the recommendation of Department of Health look at the 14 day case rate from the date of onset. We need to see that number significantly dropping. Right now we're in the low 300s. 100 is considered the the shift from high spread to lower moderate. So we have to see the numbers go down or we can't move from phase one to phase two to phase three. Like the second thing is we have to have a staffing model. We have to have staff who are able to come in. I can tell you right now, we have high numbers of students who in phase one don't have any attention to coming back. A lot of students in some situations at over half of our elementary schools, a majority of the kids want to stay virtually. So really we're not, this is not a race. When you talk about the health of students and the safety of students and staff, I'm not racing anywhere. We're going to take this very slow and deliberate. So not only will we track the transmission rate, We'll also track, are we successfully opening? And again, with the collaboration of the Department of Public Health, if we have to close down a classroom or close down a school, we'll do that. We certainly are taking the risk mitigation strategies to have to avoid that. But I think we'll know as we get three, four, five weeks into phase one, whether or not it's safe enough to start to transition through the
1: rest of the phases. The voice you hear is Dr. Grant Rivera. He is a superintendent, Marietta City Schools. And we're talking about their phase plan to hopefully integrate the students back to five days of in-class instruction. A little bit later in the program, Superintendent Rivera, I'm going to talk with a parent who has some concerns that they have a child with special needs and that it's virtually impossible to get the in-class instruction, not just instruction, but there's a lot of other social and emotional concepts there. Can you understand that? And what have you all been able to do to help those students who have IEP students with special needs?
4: So do I understand it? Absolutely. And I'll I'll give you two very personal reasons why. One, I'm a former special education teacher. Mm-hmm. And I would argue still a special education teacher, even my role as superintendent. And then two, I have a brother with severe disabilities. And I can't imagine, and, and I have talked with my father many times about this, the toll that virtual learning has taken on 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 students that would be like my brother, you know, if he had still been in school. Mm -hmm. So I I say to you, yes, we acknowledge, and that's really why Marietta City Schools prioritize students with disabilities getting back into the classroom. And throughout virtual learning, we're also providing support to families uh, virtually. So, I mean, one small example is speech services. Students who have speech services still get those virtually. There are things we can't do which is all uh, we can't do virtually, which is all the reason why we need to get our kids back in the building, but do it safely and in small groups. We recognize that our students with disabilities are often our most deserving learners who struggle the most in accessing virtual learning. So whether it's the academic content, the social emotional development, um, all of it, there are things we just can't replicate. And I think we have to be sensitive as a community that these children face greater challenges and we don't need to take the same approach that might work with one child for another child who has different needs. And I think that's that is that's what's pulled on my heart, candidly, and been a priority for us as we look to develop this plan in Marietta.
1: I want to shift for a moment and talk about the virtual learning. Now, do all the students, to your knowledge, have a device that they will need, Chromebook, laptop, what have you?
4: Yeah, so I can answer that two ways. Uh, In Marietta City Schools, we've made a commitment that every single child who needs both a device and a hotspot will be given one. So to date, we've handed out over 4,700 Chromebooks to our roughly 8,800 kids. And we've also handed out over 1,000 hotspots. So we continue to message that and have since March. We had kids who didn't pick them up from spring, but now that we've opened school, they want them. We continue to hand them out. And uh, we prioritize that in our budget, and I think we should prioritize that in learning.
1: To your knowledge, in these first few weeks of school, is, is there some sort of assessment to see if, how much loss of learning might have occurred for some students since you all, since the entire state months ago, had to all go online? I mean, is that something that you all have implemented?
4: Yeah, Rose, that's such a, you've asked such an important question. And I, I want to park on it for a moment because I think that what you just asked is at the core of what every family should be asking. Every one of your listeners should be asking themselves, how do I know and how does my child's teacher know virtually whether my child is on track or not? I'll give you just some quick numbers just to further put an exclamation point in your question, and that is... There's a there's a research put out by the NWEA, which is a an organization, they looked at five million children. And what they said basically is that if you compare a child going into a grade level this this in August compared to a child last year, the child who's been impacted by virtual learning, compared to their age and grade appropriate peers from a year ago, will be 50% behind in math and 30% behind in reading. Your question is so important. And again, I say it. Every parent listening should be asking it. In Marietta, what we're doing, not to get too technical, but every child, um, our, our youngest learners, but every child has access to what we call MAP scores, It's called measurement of academic progress. We, in fact, my daughter goes in tomorrow for an hour and a half tomorrow and an hour and a half Thursday as a second grader in our district to take the MAP test. Why? We have to have their data and be able to compare them from where they were back in January, which is the last time we gave the MAP map test in Marietta. We have got to be able to look at this data, and we've got to hand it to families. We have to hand it to teachers and say whether we're in person or we're virtual, you leverage every piece of information you have about a child, because we can't be generic. This has to be personalized. And I again, I think your question is so spot on. In Marietta, that's our approach. I think whatever but uh, the other districts may be doing it differently, but that is a critical question. Here's the thing. It's not good enough for families to simply march along and do what the virtual teacher tells them to do. They have got to stop and ask, how do I know whether my kid developmentally is where they should be mm-hmm. in August based on their age and grade. And that is the most important question you've asked me. Candidly.
1: Wow. Superintendent Rivera, you, you mentioned your kids. Let me ask you this. How has the online experience been for them? You know, it's been, I think it's been good enough, if I'm being honest.
4: Um, Mm -hmm. My daughter's teacher um, is hustling. My daughter's teacher, and I would argue so many across the district, have done special things, to not only make themselves an effective virtual teacher, but also to build relationships with children. I am so proud of what the educators have done um, virtually. I'll also say what happens in a classroom is magic. And there's been a slight degree of magic lost when they don't have their peers and they're not sitting face to face with a teacher who can smile at them and hug them and high five them and what have you. So is it good? Yes, I'm pleased. Is it what any parent would want for their child? No, I don't think so. And I think that's why we continue to push, we push the the envelope of, of innovation and creativity and ingenuity, because we know we want to get back to that magic when it's safe to do such. So I'm proud of our educators. I see it as a dad, and I also realize, hey, there's something we're all still missing.
1: And finally, before September 8th, how much sleep do you think you're gonna get at night?
4: <laughs> you know, here's what I'll say: I'm hustling, but you know what? I'm not working half as hard as our teachers. You know, I'm a super. I'm a superintendent. I, I can make decisions that ripple across this district, but that's very different than the 700, 800 educators, counselors, administrators who are working tirelessly. So I can assure you that I'm going to get more more sleep than a teacher. And I think that's why every one of your listeners, I, I would leave you with this thought. If there's someone who's left a positive impression on you, like just pop them an email, whatever it may be, because I can tell you this is thankless. It is so tiring and there are a lot of sleepless nights for educators who are on 8 10 12 hours a day trying to help kids they are the heroes in this and they're the ones who deserve both the praise and the sleep Hmm.
1: dr grant rivera superintendent marriott city schools thank you for taking the time best of luck this school year i don't know how you are a second grade math but uh
4: thanks rose if i need help i'll let you know
1: well i'm not the one (laughs) thank you so much superintendent i really appreciate it i appreciate you rose thank you as always Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It's week two of Back to the Lecture Halls and Labs for the University of Georgia. Sort of, kind of, kind of, sort of. That's the unofficial way of saying it's kind of virtual. And then again, it's not. And like so many colleges and universities, institutions of higher ed across the country, well, they've had to make a decision how and when to begin the academic year. Now, just last week, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill campus made headlines after pivoting from in-person classes to remote learning. Why? Well, because folks weren't doing what they were supposed to, apparently. And this came after a spike in COVID-19 cases. At the time of their decision, UNC officials said the cases had risen from 2.8% to 13.6% over the week students were on campus. And after the spike in cases were reported, well, there was a headline from the Daily Tar Heel. The university student newspaper, which read, quote, we all saw this coming, close quote. Now, some professors and students worry a similar situation may unfold at UGA and throughout Georgia. Now, joining me now to share their experiences are professors and graduate students from campuses throughout the state. We have Denisha Pyle, a graduate assistant at Georgia College and State University, Joe Fu, a math professor at the University of Georgia, Rebecca Ward, a biology professor at Georgia Gwinnett College, and Bryant Barnes, a graduate assistant at UGA. And they're all members of the United Campus Workers of Georgia. This is a collective of university employees from campuses across the state, and they're calling on the university system of Georgia to, quote, set policies that allow a safer and more equitable return to campus during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And they all join me now. And we'll get to a statement from the University System of Georgia in just a moment. But thank you all for taking the time. I really appreciate it. There's a lot to get out. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. Let's begin here. Classes have officially started. Let's go around the room here. Are you seeing folks? practicing social distancing? Are you seeing folks wearing masks? We heard what Denisha just said. Uh, Professor Ward, what are you seeing at at Georgia Gwinnett College?
3: Most people appear to be complying. That said, just like Denisha, I see people who are not wearing masks. Mostly that's outside, which obviously poses a smaller risk.
1: Professor Fu and Bryant, you all at UGA, are, are folks adhering to those guidelines let me
0: let me pass that off to Brian i know he witnessed something the other day you know that there was a bit alarming
1: brian yeah, what you so witness
0: the i think it was the 15th it was a saturday so this was
5: before uga started back uh there was a sorority rush event happening most of the folks were wearing masks however uh social distancing had had completely gone out the window and i shared some photos on twitter they went viral and i wanted to kind of emphasize though in that twitter thread that this ultimately wasn't on the students uh this was clearly an organized event which uga had to have had prior knowledge of and the fact that students are on campus in the first place um, shouldn't shouldn't actually be
0: the case didn't like they they shut it down the next day right basically as a reaction to the twitter wasn't that so they were more vigilant from what i've heard
5: and they did comment to the press that the students were only in there for 15 minutes, which I know is is false because I was in there longer than 15 minutes. And I also had a friend who went by about an hour later and took some photos as well. Um, so the students were in there for at least an hour.
1: Before I read a partial statement from the University System of Georgia, I just want to go around again and get you all's thoughts. And, and I'll stay with you, Bryant. Do you think... That the systems, colleges, and universities should have had in class instruction at all? Yes or no?
0: Yeah. No. Professor Fu? Well, you know, I mean, there is an argument to be made that we should have opened up, right? The economy depends on it. You know, however, I would say that the way that they have rolled this out has been abysmally poor. The plan that they have made has completely shut out workers at, at every level below the the very top, the the components of the plan are themselves, you know, in some ways, extremely misleading. They've they've intentionally misled. Denisha?
6: At the least, there should have at least been options for remote learning and teaching. Um, That's what I believe. And, you know, most of our campuses shut down around March because of because of COVID-19. And we've had since March to to try to plan around what this is going to look like. Um, But it seems like the USG's plan and the different campuses plans have so many holes in it. And once again, they're they're wanting to prioritize in-person classes. Um, So I think at the least, there should have at least been the option for students, faculty, and the staff who could to be able to work and go to school remotely.
1: Professor Ward?
6: They
3: could have done this safely, and they chose not to. They prioritized testing and contact tracing, and they did not. They could have minimized the number of people on campus at any one time by allowing anyone who wanted it to work remotely. They didn't allow people who have high-risk loved ones to get out of face-to-face. It's, it's, I don't understand why we couldn't have done these things because we need some face-to-face instruction, but we need it to be safe. And they have not done what's required to make that the case.
1: In a statement to Closer Look, it reads in part, quote, the University System of Georgia remains committed to the health and safety of students, faculty, and staff, and continues to follow COVID-19 guidance from the Georgia Department of Public Health and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, preparations for fall semester resulted from a comprehensive and detailed planning process that began in April, led by campus presidents of USG's 26 institutions, with input from hundreds of campus stakeholders. Close quote. You all don't seem to
0: agree with that. That's, I guess, it's it's misleading at best. I mean, they they at UGA. They formed nine committees to plan back in April and May, they, and I guess they, 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 were, they, they loved to, to tout their big numbers. Maybe 140 people were on, the, on those committees. Virtually everyone was an administrator of some type or a chaired professor or something of that nature to say that they, I, I'm pleased, I guess, that they've adopted this language of stakeholders. They understand that it's an issue now, but they did not include stakeholders. If, if I may say, there, there's, here's one little anecdote that I faced. I saw early on in July, I noticed that in our building where the mathematics department is housed at UGA, it housed, houses multiple academic units. And near the beginning of July, I realized that there had been no planning, zero planning across academic units for how we were going to navigate. People are gonna navigate stairwells, elevators, things of that nature across academic units. I brought this up to my department head. He said he passed it up to the dean. My department had said that the dean thought it was a good idea. It still never happened. It never happened. Stakeholders completely cut out. We should have been talking amongst ourselves, with custodians, with all other departments, how are we going to work this out? Never worked it out face-to-face, uh, the detail that, that only we could have could have brought to bear.
1: So transparency is, through your lens, there has been none or has been lacking.
3: is that the stakeholders and most listened to were the people who ran the dorms. They did not consult the union, and they did get notice that they needed to fill the dorms from their corporate partners. So stakeholder from our perspective <laughs> is not from below.
0: Yeah. Corporate stakeholder, yeah, that's right. Financial stakeholder, yeah. Is it
1: fair to say that for some of y'all, this may be putting profits over
0: people and safety? No doubt. And furthermore, I would say, even from that perspective, they are blowing it hugely. You know, what's going to happen in the aftermath. You know, I don't see this ending. Well, the whole brand is going to be damaged. The long-term prospects are going to be damaged. I, in my, from what I see, they are uh, even on their own on the, on the, on the terms of profits over people, they're going to mess up their own profits in the long run. It's enormous. It's incredible. It's incredible.
1: Tanisha, I want you and Brian to weigh in as well.
0: Yeah, I
6: wanted to point out how harmful this is for these college communities. Um, Georgia College is in Milledgeville, um, which is a small town with one hospital, um, also serving, it's a rural community. It's also serving other um, rural communities nearby. Um, We, our union has gotten reports that um, since March, there haven't really been an adequate a num- adequate number of ICU beds. Um, this is a town that's 41, has a 41% poverty rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having all these students come into campus, we already have, we're already seeing um, the numbers go up and up and up on campus. So we're bringing these students in and it's going to harm the community. Right, it's going to overwhelm the health care system. Um, And then also, um, students are, they don't, we haven't heard anything about students who do have um, COVID having um, a place to quarantine on campus, right? Um, A lot of them are being sent home where they can go spread it to their loved ones. Right and to their to their home communities, um, and so I just I want people to understand that this problem um, is not just is just not on the campuses campuses. It goes beyond the campuses into the communities and harms the communities.
1: Brian? Yeah.
0: No.
5: On the on the point of stakeholders, um, grad students um, who are often kind of on the front lines of instruction at times. Um, We have not been consulted, uh, at least at UGA, and um, to kind of echo Venetia's points about the surrounding community, um, athens Clark County is, if not the poorest, it's one of the poorest per capita counties in the state of Georgia. Um, And it's a blatant kind of disregard for the larger Athens community, which is Predominant, or well, the surrounding uh, area of UGA is predominantly black and brown people who have much less access, ready access to quality health care.
1: We've just got about two minutes left, but I want to give you all an opportunity to wrap this up. As we talk about is there a compromise? Now, your organization is calling on the university system to provide masks, and you want free, frequent, and accurate COVID-19 testing. First of all, do you all know if USG has been responsive to these requests and is there a compromise here at all? And I'll start with you, Professor Ward.
3: There is a compromise. They can actually spend the money and take care of our students and we can have face-to-face instruction. That's what they want. We can have face-to-face instruction safely, but they need to spend the money to make sure that every campus gets proper testing and contact tracing. And they have the resources. We have a a website that shows a a calculator for um, how they could have a progressive furlough or they could have a salary cap. And even more uh, important, they could use some of their foundation money. This is a rainy day. We need to take care of our people. And so the compromise is (laughs) give us what we need to be safe, and some of us will teach
6: face-to-face.
1: Denisha, what about you? Where's a compromise here, if there is one?
6: I think it's time for them to start listening to the, the students, the staff, the faculty, the communities, mm-hmm. um, stakeholders other than the Board of Regents. I think we're making it loud and clear what we need, right? The testing um, that is sufficient, that is timely, the contact tracing, um we don't want layoffs right we we want hazard pay for our um, you know facilities pe- uh, people who are having to do these dangerous jobs. We want um, people who need it students and, and and faculty and staff to be able to have online options and I feel like there can be negotiation and compromise if, if they just listen, how many petitions have we have we sent? <laughs> you know, how many call-ins have we done? Um, all it takes is to listen, um, and not just to pe- not just to the people in power. Um, so I think there will be a compromise once um, the USG and the and their board of regents decides to listen to all of their stakeholders.
0: Hmm.
1: Professor Fu, compromise?
0: Uh, I would. Heavily second what Denisha just said, you know, um, this could have been a moment when the USG, UGA galvanized the community, took this, this uh, crisis seriously, as it is, they've been been playing it down, trying to pretend it's business as usual, but they could have taken the moment and could have brought the workforce together at all levels, and we could have worked it out how we are going to keep ourselves safe from the, at a detailed level on up
1: and Bryant, I'll give you the last word.
0: Uh,
5: I think we've given them um, several chances, uh, as, as my friends have already said, to compromise. They have been unwilling, and I think, to be honest, um, the, the compromise is not going to happen unless universities break with uh, the university system of Georgia and actually act in the interests of the, their campus communities uh, and the communities that surround them. Um, we can't if, if university administrators are going to kowtow and kind of defer and defer and defer to the Board of Regents uh, and then blame students, um, we're not going to have any compromise. It, it's until they're willing to actually take responsibility for the fact that we're on campus and the fact that cases are rising on campuses, there's not going to be a compromise.
1: Bryant Barnes, graduate assistant at University of Georgia. Also, Rebecca Ward, biology professor at Georgia Gwinnett College, Professor Joe Fu, math professor at the University of Georgia, and Denisha Powell, graduate assistant at Georgia College and State University. Thank you all for taking the time to share your concerns. really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you
3: all so much. I'm really glad that this is getting a voice
1: out there that's it for this edition of closer look which is produced by grace walker and lashawn hudson our engineer is shelly canavy if you missed any of today's program it's online at wabe.org slash and of course you can listen to closer look weeknights at 8 p.m and listen whenever you want because closer look is now available as a podcast just visit npr1 or your favorite streaming app and subscribe This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR